0: Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast, Episode 3. I'm your host, Des Latham. This week we'll hear about the start of the war in October 1899 and about the structure of both the British and Boer armies. We'll also find out just how unprepared the British were for this conflict and learn a little about how mobile the Boers really were in the first modern war of the era. As we know by now, English-speaking mine workers and the British mine owners in Johannesburg had tried to force London to annex the Transvaal Republic since the early 1890s and finally negotiations over the rights collapsed. War has not been formally declared yet. It's spring in the Southern Hemisphere. Troop ships carrying British soldiers, artillery, horses, food and other materials are on their way to South Africa from around the Empire, from India, Crete, Australia, Northern Ireland, Mauritius, Malta, Egypt. It's October 1899. Temperatures are climbing past 30 degrees centigrade or 86 degrees Fahrenheit on the dusty plains called the Felt, where some of nature's most violent thunderstorms awaited the unprepared. The English-speaking population in the Transvaal, more particularly Johannesburg, were fleeing in their thousands towards the coastal cities of Durban and Cape Town. That's a 1,400-kilometre journey to the Cape. They went by carriage, cart and horse, ox wagon and train like the spring temperature the political temperature was building. Boers were also on the move across the Transvaal and Free State Republics. Whole families travelled to the meeting points in their wagons, women, children and black workers. Farms were left in the hands of the elderly with armed guards as the Boers feared the local black populations would plunder their empty homesteads. The Boers began to build up stores of ammunition, food and transport, and livestock like mules, while Aitlanders reported seeing artillery moving towards the borders as they rushed away with possessions, believing that war was imminent. On the 2nd of October, the Transvaal Parliament, known as the Volksrat, or People's Parliament, approved war at a meeting in Pretoria. It was there that Paul Kruger exclaimed, God has spoken in his wisdom, I will rejoice but he still hadn't issued his ultimatum, nor had the British. The complexity of Boer-British relationships is difficult to fathom almost 120 years later. Throughout South Africa, relationships had built up between English and Boer. There had been some intermarriage between these two different peoples, where the children spoke English and Dutch and now would have to choose. War was both imminent and inevitable, and at times would be felt as a civil war. And counter to the belief that it was a white man's war, black South Africans would be directly and indirectly involved throughout, as we'll see. We heard last week how General George White, who was officer commanding of troops in the Natal province, had stepped off his ship on the 3rd of October, having arrived from London to take over as officer commanding, only to discover that things were moving faster than he'd expected. The hothead Colonel Simons had split his force and was marching towards Transvaal weakening his force in Natal. General White was horrified and then proceeded to rush to Natal from Cape Town. Meanwhile, on the 5th of October, Joseph Chamberlain, the Colonial Secretary, had written to Lord Alfred Milner, the Governor of the Cape, to commend a fresh-faced news reporter who was to change the world. And he wrote, I am sending a line to anticipate a probable visit from Winston Churchill, he wrote the son of Lord Randolph Churchill, who is going out as a correspondent for the Morning Post. He is a very clever young fellow, with many of his father's qualifications. He has the reputation of being bumptious, but I have not myself found him so, and time will no doubt get rid of that defect if he has it. He is a good writer, and full of energy. Kruger and Steyn, the Transvaal and Free State's presidents, had not been idle. They had managed to gather a significant force of 35,000 men. Of these, they moved 21,000 to the Natal border, 15,000 Transvaalers, and 6,000 Free Staters. They were broken up into four groups and arranged in a crescent formation. German commanders had joined the Boers as well. The Johannesburg and German formation were led by General Johannes Koch and he had formed up on the western reaches of the Jarkensburg Mountains, the highest peaks of which some loomed close to 12,000 feet. And 11,000 men were led by General Jobert in the centre, and then 2,000 men were in the east, near Freyheit. At the front of their formation was General Lucas Meyer. All of these we will learn more about in the coming year. The trap they'd set was for the British formations in Dundee and Ladysmith. As we'll see, the trap would work possibly better than Kruger would have hoped when he learned of the plan. There were another 15,000 men in the Free State looking south towards Cape Town, and their role was to seal off Mafeking and then Kimberley. Kruger's plan had many faults, but not as long as the British were unaware of where his men were and the exact size of his armies. A huge commander turned out to celebrate Kruger's birthday on the 10th of October in Pretoria. All the men under his command had trained their entire lives in a highly advanced form of mounted warfare, which is known as strategic offensive, tactical defensive. What that means in reality is, if the enemy is superior in numbers, provoke their attack, dismount, take cover, shoot, remount, ride away. It was a tactic that had served them well virtually since the start of the Great Trek and before in the 1830s and in all wars they'd fought against black South Africans there were now around 13,000 British troops close to the Free State and Transvaal Republics. So it was then that on the 10th of October, Kruger awoke to his birthday and a military parade in his honour. He stood as the commando after commando filed past, ranchers from the Bushveld in the east, solicitors and clerks from Pretoria, a thousand Dutch and Germans and 100 Irish Aitlanders from Johannesburg. He had already issued his ultimatum to the British that morning, which was to come as a complete surprise to those in London. And this is what he wrote. Remove your men from our frontiers and send home all the reinforcements. It was as simple as that, a simple message, to start a complex war. In Pretoria, the Union Jack was lowered at the British Embassy and the USA Consul was left to watch their interests. At 6.15 in the morning on Tuesday, 10th of October 1899, Chamberlain was awoken in London with the news and was stunned. The Times newspaper called the ultimatum an infatuated step by a petty republic. The Globe referred to the impudent burghers, but as Thomas Pakenham says, the smooth surface of Victorian life was not yet to be ruffled by the war. That evening, Queen Victoria cabled her rejection of the ultimatum and it was war. When the populace heard what had happened, thousands gathered in English cities waving the Union Jack, and Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem which was sung throughout the countryside. I won't sing it, but it went something like this When you've shouted Rule Britannia, when you've sung God Save the Queen, when you've finished killing Kruger with your mouth, will you kindly drop a shilling in my little tambourine for a gentleman in khaki ordered south? A frenzy of fundraising began, and there had to be. There was a dark undertone to all this yelling and flag waving. Britain, in spite of its perceived power, did not have a military caught up. It had a tiny professional standing army, as we've seen in the previous podcast. It didn't have the capacity really to conduct an immediate war in a remote territory against a highly mobile and well armed and motivated force. In the War Office, there were a few ripples of nervousness. They were afraid the Boer may rush to the coasts and attack their cities, Durban, Cape Town, Port Elizabeth, East London. Lansdowne wrote to Chamberlain that the soldiers were in ecstasies of happiness. The entire British army, as we've seen, numbered around 314,000, considerably smaller than its European opponents, although far larger than the Boers. It could also call on local militia, both in colonies and at home. These local armies of men from the same towns and villages were a good idea until 1914 when the carnage of the trench warfare meant entire male lines of hamlets were wiped out simultaneously in those massive artillery bombardments. Yet the army Britain was about to dispatch to South Africa was the biggest in nearly 100 years, even larger than the number that ended up fighting in the Crimea. At the same time, the Liberals in the UK were horrified. They tried to avoid the clash and Kruger's ultimatum had ripped the carpet out from under their feet. There were around 32,000 militia in Australia and about the same number in Canada and around 7,700 in New Zealand. A firm decision was taken at the Home Office that only white troops would be used to actually fight in South Africa so the great potential of the massive Indian army the British had was not available. Not since Agincourt In 1415 had the British army fought with exclusively white troops and only because of the consideration of race relations in South Africa did London not call on the 170,000 Indian troops or hundreds of thousands of West Indians and Africans. The so-called white man's war had started. Yet this was not to be as we'll see it was an African war and all those living in Southern Africa were to feel its impact. And those who felt it most sharply, obviously, after the combatants, were the blacks of the country. One of those is Sol Plyke, who lived in Mafeking during the siege of the town and has left a remarkable diary of his experience. We'll hear from him in the next few podcasts. Historians in the 21st century have tried to expunge this war largely because of its feature as a conflict of its time, arguing it was irrelevant because it was between whites. That's insulting to the people of all races, particularly black South Africans who suffered greatly and were involved at all times and in each battle as heroes as well as villains depending on your point of view. The diary of Sol Plyke who was radicalised while enduring the siege of Mafeking, King is case in point. At this point a few things need to be said about the weapons each were to point at each other. We've already heard about the mauser the highly accurate lightweight rifle with a new invention called the magazine. It was a bolt-action weapon, meaning a highly trained rifleman could fire off an average of 30 rounds a minute. Compare that to the single-shot rifle used in the First Boer War, which required a preload per shot and of around 6 or 7 rounds per minute. While we'll spend an entire episode concentrating on these technicalities, we do need to outline some of the modern aspects of this war. As we'll see from the first confrontations, the British completely underestimated the extent to which smokeless rounds would affect their planning. Usually smoke emanating from hidden points would be a dead giveaway for snipers or infantry hiding behind cover. Not in this war. The British would use Lee-Enfields, first issued in 1895, extremely high-powered weapons but heavier than the German Mauser, and both would continue to be used throughout the First World War in 14 years' time, all the way through to the end of the Second World War in 1939-1945. It also fired fewer rounds per minute than a Mauser, around 20 for a highly trained soldier. Another major advance exploited by both sides was the use of artillery. The newest guns used both smokeless powder and a terrifying invention by Lieutenant Shrapnel, the shell which exploded and sent jagged bits of metal flying in all directions. As I said, we'll delve deeper into the full details of these weapons, but right now just remember how a lack of smoke and the effect of anti-personnel Shrapnel heavy shells would be a major strategic advantage to those who understood how to use these developments. There was another invention, thanks to Alfred Nobel, of a propellant that was both stable and extremely violent. It was called dynamite and would be used heavily. A new invention on the Anglo-Boer War battleground was the machine gun. The first version was a Maxim gun, an extremely heavy water-cooled multiple round firing weapon standing on a tripod and fed by a belt of ammunition. It wasn't the first war to use the machine gun, but some of the aspects of multiple guns working together and laying down a field of fire set the scene for the coming world wars and wars up to the present. The machine gun had been used by the French against the Prussians in the 1870s. In Africa, it was first used against the Ndebel in Zimbabwe in 1893 and the Dervishes at Omdurman in 1898. Curiously, the British thought the device uncivilized and only good to be used in what they called savages. The Boers had no such qualms and probably thought of the British as savages, considering their godless ways and lust for gold and treasure. Sir George White, the British general commanding Natal units, had arrived in Durban on the 7th of October, three days before the Kruger ultimatum, and a fortnight after Simons had divided his force, pushing forward a brigade from Ladysmith to Dundee. White was in time to oversee the disembarkation of troops from India, who were dispatched immediately to Ladysmith, They were burnt brown from their time in India and appeared to acclimatise quickly, but no one had fired a shot at them yet. In South Africa, they were going to spend days lying on their stomachs in the open felt being picked off in over 35 degree heat without a drop of water dying both of heat exhaustion and wounds. Back in England on the 14th of October, a large crowd gathered on Southampton docks to bid Sir Redverse Buller godspeed on his trip to South Africa. Joining him aboard the Dunantar Castle was a young Winston Churchill, as well as Buller's two war horses called Einmonger and Biffin. He took his polo sticks and even a bicycle. While the eccentricities may be all good and well, General Buller was not happy. He knew that General White had allowed Colonel Simons to remain in Dundee. Throughout Buller's previous communication with the war office, he'd repeatedly told the planners that there would be no push north of the Chigella River. Dundee was north of the Chigela River. Lansdowne, whom Buller despised, and the feeling was mutual, had ignored him. In Cape Town on October 14th, the rear guard of the Indian reinforcements streamed into the harbour, the same day Buller was departing Southampton. Waiting for them were part of the 60,000 men, women and children who'd fled the Rand. Some of the mines in Johannesburg were shutting, or had shut down, except for a handful the Boers had already seized. Rhodes was telling people that the Boers were, in his words, the biggest unpricked bubble in existence. Easy to defeat, he was to eat his words. Things began to move faster. Most of the imperial troops in the Cape were sent to the Orange River Bridge and the three railway junctions south of the bridge were to become synonymous with the war in that area. They were De Daar, and Nauport. They were the keys to Bloemfontein. They would see much action. The telegraph line to Muffet King deep in the northwest of the country then went dead and the Boers were reported across the border tearing up railway lines. The line to Kimberley went dead and the country was silent all the way down to the Orange River. Both Kimberley and Muffet King were now under siege. We'll hear about these incidents in more detail in future podcasts. There was some debate in the British Home Office about Muffet King with uh, officers believing that it should be left to the Boers then a delicate issue emerged. In charge of Mafeking was Lord Baden-Powell. His second in command, however, was Lord Edward Cecil, the Prime Minister of England's son. Edward was a pathetic son by all reports and had put himself in harm's way when it became clear war was imminent. He told his wife, Violet, that he wished himself dead. It was a kind of symbolic last stand. The other human tragedy which was playing out was far greater, the black mine workers in Johannesburg. Thousands from Natal and the Cape were out of a job. They had no food. Money was gone. The Boers were quite prepared to let them starve in the felt and drove them out of the cities. 7,000 began to walk from Johannesburg back to their homes in Natal without support. Then one of our strange moments in this war began a Mr. Marwick decided to bring them out of the Transvaal by himself. He resigned from his job at the Natal Native Affairs and led the Exodus. Behind him in the huge group were 30 musicians, all playing Zulu and other traditional songs on concertinas. It took them a week to walk from Johannesburg to Volksris on the Natal border. That was 240 kilometers, or 170 miles. Yet the suffering was not over. Each day the procession grew longer as more and more blacks joined, and two days later they were in sight of Dundee. At one point the Boers stopped the marches and were trying to turn them back, but after commanding 300 men to help pull their artillery pieces up Majuba Hill, the Boers relented and let them go on their way. It was three weeks later that these 7,000 entered Pietermaritzburg. Marwick's epic march had saved more than 7,000 is remembered to this day by descendants of those who escaped. It's a week into the terrible war that created the concept of the concentration camp that would sow division between English, Afrikaans or Dutch and black South Africans and still hardly a shot had been fired. So join me Des Latham next week for the fourth episode of the Anglo-Boer War. We'll hear about the British first moves in the shooting war in the Battle of Talana Hill and elanslaagte you can follow me on Twitter at Des Latham.